Hey folks, hello and welcome to Texture episode 15. This is an interview with Nate Postalweight and just wanted to give a brief introduction leading into that. Nate is a personal friend of mine, former realtor, uh, current blogger, author, public speaker, podcaster, and just overall an incredible person. This is one of my favorite episodes I've done thus far. And uh, I just want to encourage you to go look at his newly launched site, which is called theothersideofsaved.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well. And that's where you can get a fuller picture of Nate's story. And also please subscribe there to follow along as he posts new things each week. But without further ado, uh, let's get to my talk with Nate. Well, hey, Nate. Hey, Josh. Welcome to the garage. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I was thinking a good place to start would be, could you just tell me your perception of yourself five years ago when we met, or maybe it was six years ago now, but who you were when you first got to Denver as opposed to who you are now and what was different about that? Gosh. um, Well, let's clarify that you've been obsessed with me in both phases (laughs) then and now. (laughs) Um, I would say when I moved to Denver six years ago, I was uh, hungry, excited. I was jump-starting a career, starting all over. I was um, eager to believe that I found myself in new ways. I'd always felt out of place everywhere that I'd lived before. Mm. And I always had this idea that when I got to Denver, I would feel at home. So I was coming off of a long spell of isolation. I lived in Southern California for a few years, just recovering from a long, long history of other things that we'll talk about. And so when I lived there, it was really isolated um, by choice. I, I didn't really try to establish community. So when I got here, I was very intentional about yeah. establishing relationships. That was at the top of the list. Um, I think back to that guy, and I, uh, I'd i say the one thing is that I had already experienced quite a bit of healing at that point through a lot of intensive therapy. But the biggest difference between then and now is just... Um, I've just closed out that chapter of this incredible six-year journey that I built that um, I think everybody looked at and thought, boy, he's arrived and he's going to ride this out. Right. And instead, last year, I walked away from it all to go pursue other things. And I think that comes from being in a position now where I'm so comfortable in my own skin and so grateful to have the vision that I have for healing, health, self-awareness, uh, personal growth, that I want to share it. Yeah. And what, what I had built all those years was going to cost me in the long run. I, I, there was no way mm. to do both. Yeah, yeah. And for people who don't know, that was real estate mm-hmm. that when you got to Denver. And you had already been doing that for a while. Correct. In California and in Tennessee. Correct. Um, And you built up something huge that any other person in a conventional sense would think you're killing it. And 
of course you should continue doing real estate for the rest of your life. But that just didn't matter to you. Mm -mm. Right. I was killing it. It was killing me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I... Real estate, everyone used to say that it was in my blood. I've been doing it for uh, 13 years. And last year was kind of the pinnacle of being, I was the number one broker for a very high-end brokerage here in Denver and was really unhappy. Hmm. And I was getting these accolades and this praise while mentally I was breaking down and I saw such tremendous weakness on my part mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, where I really looked at it and thought, okay, you're going to have to sign on to this narrative that says this success and the monetary value is worth it while you completely neglect yourself or take a step back and pursue what's always been there. Yeah. And um, people were shocked when I announced in May that I was done with real estate altogether with no intentions of ever returning and just taking a hard right turn in a, a different direction. Right. Do you think any of that, the uh, striving for success and just the fact that you give yourself to any pursuit, it, at least in terms of real estate and at least when you were less healthy than you are now, was that drive a means of seeking validation from others of like doing the best and being you know, impressing other people or was, is that just built into you no matter what? Yeah, I could, I, I don't really care about impressing other people. I think that it's, um, I'm a hard worker. I'm the youngest mm. of seven kids and we grew up very poor. Yeah. So at the core, I am a hard worker. When I have a project where I'm building something, I'm all in and I, I just, I can't do it halfway. That part I really enjoy. And there's a lot of, um, integrity behind that. I think the extreme that I take it to is allowing it to become a shield to let the world know that my life really appears grand. Hmm. And that's just not reality for what's going on behind the scenes. And last year was a perfect example of that. There was a lot of uh, intense uh, struggles going on um, where I really recognize like there's just no room for you to fall apart a little bit with this intensity going on. Yes. I think uh, the reason I wanted to start with the question of, of you starting in Denver to now is because even I, I've seen such a radical change. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, when you got to Denver, you were much healthier than prior times, I'm mm-hmm. sure. But even so, there, there was still a lot there to be dealt with. Um, I, I would say y- you seem much more at peace now. And you're le- far less angry, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like you would never, you were never outwardly lashing at people, but there was like this hum under the surface of just rage, you mm-hmm. know. And it, occasionally, I like I personally, as a close friend of you, would get glimpses of that, mm-hmm. you know, in in just you reacting to something more intensely than was necessary. Or um, so anyway, I say all that just because it's encouraging and, and notable. And I, I also feel like your own growth has opened you up so much to other people to, mm-hmm. for one thing, recognizing other people's um, flaws, but, and their hurt and being able to speak into that in a very honest, raw, but kind way. Um, but also just, it's like you have language 
to combat um, just about everything that comes your way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't mean you don't get really bogged down by it at times like all of us, but I don't know, you just seem powerful, like in a way that mm. that is really beautiful. Thank you. And that's very, that's very much all of that work I'm talking about is very integrated into what this blog is and the podcast. And what led you to want to finally tell your story in this way, being brutally honest about your own history, but also with the heart of helping others mm-hmm. who have been taken advantage of? I had a moment, I was a missionary right after high school when I was 18 and, um, I went to my dorm dad and shared with him what I thought was one of the most horrific secrets that I could share. I, um, when I was 12 years old, I was sexually abused by a man who was near 40, um, and the abuse went on for about two years. And in the course of that, abuse, he introduced me to a small ring of other pedophiles. And there was just a lot of really uh, dark behavior that took place. And that certainly set the course for tremendous shame. Yeah. So I digested all of that, all of that experience. And the, the thing about being on the mission field was for the first time in my life, I had structure. I knew what time I would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 everything was predictable. That structure gave me the room to fall apart for the first time. Mm-hmm. And one of my roommates went and got my dorm dad one night. I was having just a true meltdown, just a... Uh, I think the first time that my body and my mind and my soul and my experience were all becoming integrated for the first time. And my dorm dad came and got me out of out of my room and told me to get dressed. And we walked down to this classroom on the campus where I was a, a missionary. And I shared with him this whole story of how I met this man and I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and explained a lot of the details and um, was terrified that I was going to go to hell because of what had taken place. There was just so much confusion around the abuse. And um, his response was that I needed to repent for being involved in homosexuality. Hmm. And I repented my ass off. Um, the shame that comes from sexual abuse is like no other. I, I've had uh, shame in certain parts of my life, but none of it compares to the horrific damage that's done when someone violates something in you that's meant to be sacred. Yeah. And <clears throat> regardless of his response, I will say I don't feel he was in intentionally harmful. I think he honestly believed that what that that I was involved in homosexuality. I think that it was a massive lack of education. Mm. This was 23 years ago in Arkansas. So this was just going to be you know just a different culture. Um 
regardless of his response, that certainly laid a path of a lot of bizarre therapy and stuff that I had grown accustomed to because of that statement. But the next day, I woke up before the sun came up and I was walking across this field right beside my dorm. And I always look back to that moment as being what I say my first live encounter with God. It was this moment where I felt this presence, this voice, this movement that just said, if you stick with this story, I'll use this in ways you could never imagine. And that encounter kept me alive through many, many moments of tremendous despair. But that vision, that experience was starting to fade because of the success mm. and because of the life that I was building. Yeah. And I just recognized that it it just it was just time. I turned forty last year too, and I think that's a big part of it. There's something mm. about turning forty where <clears throat> I've had you know great success and throughout my career, but it was empty. It, it's it's not providing me what I long for, and what I long for is more moments like that when I was eighteen. Yeah. Um, it's worth noting that you you had built into you from an even younger age younger than this camp just intense militant works-based religion mm-hmm. you know which was mainly from your parents or was it just everybody in the community because i feel i feel like in your in your blogs um you've you've specifically spoken about that about how religion um not faith not spirituality but like churchy religion um really shaped your thinking for a long time and made you, made you terrified, you know? Sure. I I grew up in a culture where, um, everything was based on your performance in our youth group. When I was 12, we watched videos from the seventies of the rapture. I mean, these are literal movies where, uh, people had to have a chip placed in their forehead or their wrist and um, that's how they would buy groceries. And I mean, it was these just horrific videos that taught you that Jesus was coming back. And if you weren't saved, it, it was just placing fear in every part of you. And every Halloween, we had the, um, I don't remember the name of it, but these haunted houses where it showed like two teenagers drinking and then they were killed in an accident. And then at the end you see them in hell because one did not accept Christ. And you're just like, well, hell yeah, I'm going to get saved. Who's not like, get me the hell out of here. Right. Uh, that, that kind of gives you a glimpse into what religion and, and faith looked like in my, my upbringing. Right. Really pleasant. We, yeah. When did, when did that start to unravel? I mean, I know you said the encounter, at camp was kind of your first real experience with God, it seems like, but when did the um, sort of works-based fear religion just start to fall away and that your own faith opened up to where it is now? I had many more moments on the mission field when I was 18 that certainly, I think, translated into me recognizing that God is a very very powerful being, but an extremely um, interested being in my well-being. 
Mm-hmm. That was my, I think, my first understanding. Um, I, I still I think that it probably took a solid 12 years for me to finally salute. I was in my early 30s mm-hmm. where I had to just finally say farewell to a lot of the ideas in order to survive. I just got to a place where I recognized I cannot continue to believe in and worship this God and be a healthy person. There was just so much conflict. So I would say about eight years ago is when I really put it away. Yeah. Um, when, tell me about if you're comfortable with this, just moving away from, I don't want to like take words from, from what you have to say. I guess the simplest way to ask it is like, tell me about realizing that you had the freedom to be gay. Hmm. And that because for so long, even you, you know, shunned that because of bad counseling or because of upbringing. And it's almost like you turned a corner and realized that you had the freedom Mm -hmm. to embrace this. Mm -hmm. People that that's probably been the biggest, um, the biggest question that I've gotten is how could I have not known that it was okay to be gay and fought the way that I fought for so long because I just came out two years ago at 38. Mm-hmm. And even then when I came out, the therapy that I'd had, I'd been involved in the Exodus International uh, conferences and conversion therapy and just was part of a community that as a whole leaned on the side of you cannot be gay and have a relationship with God without him being repulsed by your sexuality. And so... Mm-hmm. I believed that even when I came out for about five months, I noticed that my ability to pray started to shrink. And at the core, I believed that God was up there sharpening a sword, waiting to just get me in the side, Hmm. to humiliate me, to see me fall, because I had the audacity to do something so secular, so something so liberal. And man, the process of engaging with God and inviting him into my sexuality since I've come out has been so profound, eye-opening. I don't think I realized how homophobic I was and and the level of self-hate that I had until I've encountered God moving in a lot of those spaces and just the incredible unconditional love and affirmation. Yeah. Was any of it, has it been scary since you came out, have you had moments of, of fearing that, I don't know, like reverting back to those thoughts of God sharpening a sword or, or feeling extremely judged or shamed by other people or like you're doing something wrong, living in sin, any of that? No, uh, no. The, the moment that the moment the light came on for me, which was July 1st of 2016, I've never looked back. Um, it was a very profound moment coming two weeks after um, my ninth EMDR intensive for, for post-traumatic stress disorder and recognizing that I was at a standstill where there was so much wreckage in my belief system about being gay that at a minimum I should at least come out and see if that provides relief and some sense of freedom instead of continuing down this path where I'm waiting on God to flip the switch and change something 
that all of these other people have suggested um, stops me from having a, a good life. Yeah. And I, I, I believed that. I genuinely believed that I was incorrect and unholy and dirty, perverted. I believed all those things. When that light switched on, there's never been any doubt whatsoever. There's been tremendous, tremendous freedom since then. Yeah. What What would you say to a young man in particular who's, I mean, doesn't matter what age he is, but um, maybe who is listening right now, living in Nebraska, mm-hmm. has the sense that he's gay. Mm-hmm. And he, his parents, his community, he goes to a conservative church. He's surrounded by people who are constantly making offhanded references to just how being gay is the worst thing ever, how, mm-hmm. how it's, you know, all, all that baggage that comes along and a young man who is striving to, to live for God, who believes he has a real relationship with God, but yet he has these voices, very real voices around him telling him he, everything you just said, he's dirty, he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say to that young man? That I'm sorry he doesn't have better resources and that he feels alone. Um, and I'm certainly not sorry that he's gay because it's going to serve him exceptionally well mm. when he finds the appropriate support system and that I wish I could be there to kick someone's ass <laughs> who is putting him in a position where he feels disconnected from the reality of who he is and to hang on, just to hang on. These, man, th- those years are so tough but they build a foundation where you're able to just kick life's ass from then on because you've really experienced isolation and loneliness and adversity in ways that a lot of people can't relate to, but please just hang on and just Mm -hmm. know that you are made in the image of God and he takes great delight in you. And that includes your sexuality. I love how you, and I think you've ended all of your blogs so far with, I am fighting for you, mm-hmm. um, which I think is notable mm-hmm. statement. What's, what's behind that? Um, I have come out very much unapologetically. Um, I, I don't have the patience to engage in a lot of theological debates. A lot of people have asked me you know, how I reconcile my sexuality and scripture and I refer them to a book that I think addresses all of that. And I just feel like, and while you're reading that, I'm going to go help a lot of other people who are hurting. Mm. Um, I've certainly taken some hits and gotten some nasty messages and it just, it does not phase me at all. I have a very specific mission. Um, and what I feel like is a calling for my life to help people who are experiencing unnecessary trauma to help them heal and have words and a voice that can influence their ability to find a healthier path for themselves and not feel so alone. Yeah. The one story you told, I just want to say to our listeners that, I mean, there's many more and, and you don't have to share all those. I feel like that's part of 
what the blog is for, mm-hmm. is to get for you to kind of present these stories one by one and, and unwrap them. Do you feel like, has it been counseling has been the counseling and therapy and EMDR has been the most key thing in undoing all of that trauma because you just, you went through so many different facets of it um, Mm -hmm. for so long. And it's almost like you to get well had to hit it from different angles Mm -hmm. in order to undo these things. But I'm mainly, I'm asking that because I'm just thinking of surely there are others listening who have had trauma in their past that maybe to this point, their only approach has been like buck up and and be tough. Mm -hmm. Um, and that maybe a lot of that stuff is not dealt with. So I'm just curious your thoughts on, on others who have had trauma and, and what was helpful for you. This is where I get very, very excited to share different details. Let me, let me say this first. The difference between trauma and dysfunction, dysfunction is something that you can go to a counselor and and say, I'm dealing with this, this, and this, and they map out some rules and say, here you go. This is how you address this. Tackle it. Here's your angle. You work towards that, and it it resolves. Trauma rules your life until it's dealt with at the root. Hmm. You cannot escape trauma. It has impact on decisions that you make, relationships that you pick, how you love, how you receive love, how you engage, how you interact, what you're addicted to. And until it's addressed at the root, it will continue to have an impact on your life. Yeah. Um, I would say the biggest change for me was uh, getting into EMDR therapy. That mm-hmm. was uh, seven years ago. And I was living in California at the time and had just been in, in living in Nashville for 10 years where most of my community and my support system was still there. So I would fly back and forth. And instead of doing a one or two hour session, I would do eight, eight or nine hours a day for three or four days only because I was taking vacation time and I was there. So I would do these intensives. And then fly back. And I, man, I I just remember the very first one was fairly light. And when I got back to California, several people made remarks about my jokes and my laughter. I just seemed uh, more engaged and lighthearted. And it really did, from the very first go round, tap into the fact that I did not have to keep making decisions based on what my brain was telling me. But like, yeah. especially decisions that were har- harmful. Right. Um, th- that first round was in no means a, a map for how the rest was going to go because it was extremely difficult. Mm. But I will say that probably the most profound change regarding trauma was has been the EMDR therapy for sure. Yeah. And would you explain to people who don't know what that is, just what that involved? Eye movement desensitization rapidization or reprocessing. Um, it's a fairly new therapy. And I, I love that I get to explain it in layman's terms. I'm not a therapist, so I get to yeah. tell you how I interpret EMDR. Um, when you have something traumatic that happens when you're six or seven years old, there's no six or seven year old that has the ability to process trauma. Um, if you think back to something horrific that happened that really stands out to you, 
there's no way that that six-year-old could have said, well, that was inappropriate and I'm going to address this or process this. Yeah. So we, um, as humans put that, we tuck it away and we put it in a place that we, uh, do every, that, that we can't access it anymore. And what we do is we tell ourselves that that is, um, no longer a part of our lives. We, buffer it with denial. We buffer it with addiction. We buffer it with bad decisions. We buffer it with being busy and we leave it there. And, and what we don't realize is that with it being there, it is having a tremendous impact on the decisions we continue to make on a daily basis. EMDR is, um, there are several different forms. I do the, uh, the hand movement where the therapist has their hands in front of my face and they're actually have my eyes follow them back and forth. And what it's doing is it's taking you current day. So at the time, 32 year old Nate would go back to these memories when he was six and you're addressing it from a a place of maturity and you're walking back into that place to feel the feelings again, to go through the emotions, to unveil what it was like to be that kid in that place. And then you address it from current day. And what that does is it welcomes it out of that spot in your brain where it's been trapped for so long and welcomes it to current day. So something really traumatic that really triggered me when I was six years old just does not have the same effect. Yeah. Because you've then gone back and you've undone that. You've pulled it from the root and addressed it. Right. It's powerful. I've, I've done a small amount as well. What's interesting also is, is present day. Then when you go back to your life, when you go back to daily life, you catch yourself in moments of where maybe you would be drawn to behavior that you don't want, or even just reacting to a scenario out of fear or out of whatever it may be, worry, panic, um, anger, of just even if you're not directly thinking of yourself as a child, you recognize the similarity of that emotion and are able to sort of get back on track, at least I've found. I Something I noticed after doing EMDR was it made me more, one, more empathic to others, but also more emotional in a way that I think is really good. Almost like for 28 years, I was holding back tears that were dying to come out. Wow. Now that doesn't mean I cry all the time, but it, um, and it's not even sadness I'm talking about. I might be filled with joy because of something my daughter does mm-hmm. and just start to cry. And that, and that did not happen prior to counseling. Um, so it's just, I think one, a freedom to let those things come out, but also it's like, I'm, I'm lighter. I'm those those channels are looser in me, um, in a really beautiful way. That's really powerful. That's, I, I tell people that it's like having a conversation with your six year old self and it's you being able to love and embrace them. And, and like I said, I was 32 when I started EMDR to have a 32 year old approach to how to handle a wounded child. And I think recognizing that child is the one carrying that trauma and living inside of you. And, and it's the ability to go back to that child and recognize I have to give you the freedom 
to be your six-year-old self again yeah. and not carrying this pain. And I think that that, it sounds like that's what you tapped into. You were able to go back and relieve that part of you that was carrying this tremendous um, pain. And now for you're, you're now able to express emotion in appropriate ways because it's not locked up. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've told you this before, but my therapist described it like when you're, when you're young and you experience something traumatic, something frightening or, or whatever it may be painful, it's like it creates a, a root in your brain, creates almost like a, a stopping point or a marker. And then for the rest of your life, as it well, as you continue to grow and get older, that tree grows and all these channels and branches come out that that all trickle back to that so you could be 30 years old in a boardroom meeting and something I, I know the term triggered is used a lot but something could trigger you even if it's just you get flustered or upset mm-hmm. um, that's channeling all the way back to that original sensation of fear or anger and if it's not dealt with then you're going to continue to get stuck in the exact same place mm-hmm. and man do I think I mean it, it hurts my heart to know how many people are stuck in that and don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And that's not a judgment. That's like a, like, I, I wish that they could see what I see, um, how angry they are or, or how hurt they are. And, and they're trying to cover it up with things that don't work. But anyway. I think too, how often I hear someone say, gosh, I'm really impacted by your story. I can't relate to it any in any way, mm. um, but really appreciate you know what you've had to offer. And then, over the course of time, I get to know them, and then you hear these stories, and you think, "How do you not know that that's trauma?" That that I mean, yes. I, I I I don't want to jump on board and convince everybody on the planet that they have trauma. Sure, definitely. But I I also don't think that if someone's wrestling with addiction, that that came from them just making some bad decisions. Yeah. There's something there. There's a foundation underneath them where something has happened where they are causing harm to themselves and they're needing to escape who they are. Right. And I'm I'm just I'm still um amazed by how many people don't recognize some of the harm that has rewired the decisions that they're making and and not not recognize that. Right. And over the years, people start to have, they just develop a narrative around it to make it fit or to have a way to talk about it. And yeah, like you said, you could hear someone tell a story from their past, just dismissive, like, oh yeah, this happened to me, no big deal. And, right. and to have someone on the outside say, whoa, no, that was substantial. Right. That was painful. You did not deserve to go through that. Um, yeah, it's like it surprises them. It didn't even occur to them a lot of the time. Right. Something you, something you've said to me before, is uh, that you feel like you lost your twenties, or that you didn't get to experience your twenties. And mm-hmm. if you're comfortable sharing, um, what was the reason for that? Because even even that statement is just painful um, to just know that those were some hard years when, when you were not at your best, when you did not have the, 
you know, the benefit of therapy and almost just like, I, it's, it's amazing to me that you kept going, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't have to get specific, but just as much as you feel comfortable with. Sure. So this is a time where the Exodus movement, Exodus International was a ministry that was, um, they were part of the ex-gay movement. So their intent was to have you come be involved and they, they really taught you why you should hate so many parts of yourself and why you're not pleasing to God, why you're not righteous, why you can't fully be loved. And so the unfortunate part, I think I was 20 the first time I went to an Exodus conference and it was kind of mandatory. It was presented to me as this is something you really need to do. And I went and I fully uh, invested. Um, I went again the next year. I was so invested that I moved to Nashville to be a part of a support group that was a branch from Exodus because I thought, well, that's, you just, you have to be a part of this on, on every level. Right. Being 40 and looking back at my 20s, it was full of weekly conversion therapy, um, weekend retreats, um, every possible book to undo mm. my homosexuality, uh, no dates, no love, no affection. I had uh, success, hmm. and that's about it. Um, I was so lonely, and I was in so much pain, but I didn't feel like I had permission to pursue anything that involved intimacy yeah. until this issue was fixed. And so I didn't. Right. Um, you know, I was still very sexually active in a very, uh, very oppressed way, but um, no affection, no intimacy, no, no connection of anything authentic or life-giving at all. Right. And I never went to college. I, uh, never had a lot of just the roots of where you go on weekend trips with friends. I truly lived through all of my 20s with this really loathsome, very apologetic view of what a horrific person I was hmm. because there was this strand of homosexuality in me and I really felt apologetic about that. Yeah. What was, what was the point where I don't know, living, living through that, believing all that and just suppressing your mind because you felt like you had to, what was the first glimpse of feeling, I don't know, validated is the right term by someone else? Or, or what was the point where you realized this is not working? I need outside help or, or and just coming into self-awareness and things like that. Two answers. Uh, the first, I would say self-awareness was December of 2008. Um, when I had a nervous breakdown and at that point I had been in therapy for 13 years. I was on the outside presenting this great life, her terribly lonely, terribly lonely, very much isolated. And when I had, when your body stops working mm -hmm. and you just have tremendous anxiety, what I had as a buffer from feeling alone and, and afraid of myself was 
my career. And at that time, I had such severe PTSD that I could not work. Yeah. And um, I had just built this gorgeous home in Nashville. Um, and just my memories there are, are terrible. I was so lonely. And I look back at that. It, I was hanging on day by day. I would sleep two and three hours a night. I would wake up having dreams. All the abuse that I had uh, prior to being abused at 12 and 13 was starting to manifest itself and it was coming to life in new ways and I couldn't tackle it. And for about 10 months, I looked at that, um, the numbness that I had had prior to then and, and just said to myself, you cannot be hurting this bad and be making progress. There's mm -hmm. no way. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. And you know, the, the prior 13 years of therapy by no means was a waste. There were certainly things that were addressed, but someone should have put me in different hands very early on, um, who was just more educated, more equipped. And during that time, hell, someone should have had me on Xanax and anything to just help me sleep at night. A good friend of mine was a, a doctor and he came over one night and walked in the door and just put a pill in my hand and said, take this right now. You have to sleep. Cause I just was hmm. wired and my weight would fluctuate 10 pounds at a time up and down over that 10 months. That was certainly a turning point for me. Yeah. I went to a, I went to a outpatient center later that year. That was so powerful and so profound. Hmm. It was uh, called onsite in Cumberland furnace, Tennessee. The therapist there, I've obviously done um, therapy all over the U.S. I've gone to several different uh, centers for trauma and addiction and all these different things. That, that experience there was just incredibly profound because, number one, the therapist, when you look at their initials for all the, the different licenses they have, they just go on and on and on. These are the most gifted, educated therapists out there. Hmm. And they know how to get your trauma to the surface incredibly quickly yeah. and help you address what really needs to be addressed. They see things 10 minutes before you say it, before it's coming out of your mouth. Wow. That experience really, it burst the bubble that I was living in where the Friday night that I got home and, and got back to my house in Nashville, I kind of looked around and was like, man, I really hate this life that I've built for myself a lot. Hmm. So I started making really drastic decisions right away. And that I think that that kind of changed the trajectory of everything that was to come, even to today, that those yeah. decisions made a huge difference in how my life's panned out. Right. If you're comfortable, would you talk about just the period of time where you were um, pursuing relationships with women and just the way that that my perception of it, and I, and I guess you've said things to me, but was just that you always enjoyed them as friends, but the romantic sexual attraction was non-existent. Right. And I think for a, a period, for a long time, you you felt obligated what was going on there. I'm definitely still not attracted to women. Yeah. As far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. A lot of women were interested in you. Like that's, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, they were they were being thrown at you. People were trying to hook you up. They were somebody always had a friend, right? That right. they wanted to send your way. Some single right. woman. Anyway, carry on. And deep down, I was thinking, does she have a brother? Um, so, yeah, the very early on, when I was taught these things about homosexuality, it, it certainly carved a path of performance for me to say okay, I'm going to trust that God is going to heal this very broken thing in me. And in the meantime, God forbid anyone find out that I have this her- horrific secret. Yeah. Dating was part of that performance. And when I look back, I connected with women in such a profound way, especially emotionally. But they're always... I sought women out who were equal performers, always really attractive, really successful, really um, enough that would overshadow how insignificant I felt. Hmm. There was never a physical or sexual attraction. There was in my early 20s. I dated someone in my early 20s who um, there was stirring there, but but when I look back now, it's still very clear to me that I was was definitely gay. Yeah. Um, as I've gotten older, there's zero um, physical or, or sexual attraction. And a big part of my coming out two years ago was being set up with someone by a previous therapist, which is incredibly inappropriate from that whole culture. Set me up with one of his clients. And... Um, she was just really attractive and had a lot of depth and we we began to date in one particular night it was this engagement where she turned to me and just wanted more she wanted more emotionally physically and i began to shut down every part of me mm. began to shut down and so i had her drop me off at some friend's house that night. We, I was actually visiting her in um, Phoenix. She was on a work trip and I was staying with some friends. I laid in bed that night until about three in the morning, beating myself up and saying, you are so worthless. Why have you not trusted God with your sexuality? Why have you not invited God into your masculinity? You are so wounded. Why are you not trusting God to heal you and flip the switch? And I genuinely believed that I was still a horrific human being, that there was just something that I had not done correctly to experience healing. And I look back now and I think the traumatic experience was me pursuing her physically when there was no draw. Yeah. And truly going against the grain of my DNA, my fiber, my core self, going against that and pursuing that. And when things were falling apart there in Phoenix that day, I called that therapist and shared with him a lot of the anxiety. And he just said, don't end it with her. Just don't end it. Hang in there. Just hang on. And Hmm. I look back at that and I think, boy, that was just inappropriate is the understatement Hmm. of the decade. Yeah. Um, I, she reached out to me a year later and I, I actually asked to meet up with her and just apologized if there was any wounding to her femininity, her beauty, her true self. 
from me exiting that situation just explained that I had since come out and that um, she was just part of a situation that um, was very unfortunate. But I just wanted to make sure that I reached out to her and said, I hope you know this was 100% about my own pain and my own journey. And hopefully it didn't hurt you in, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's interesting that from what I hear you saying, it wasn't uh, societal pressure, you going after women it was almost this narrative of like eventually god is going to change this in me and almost like when i find the right one um and and a little bit also of faking it until it's true um except it just wasn't going to be true but thank goodness you didn't end up with her or with anyone you know because that just would have been so messy now well and i i also I, i think back to the messages one of the main messages that i got was once you allow a woman in emotionally and you're able to share your true self and everything about your pain, you allowing her close to you will heal mm. your sexuality and you will then become heterosexual. Mm. And I believed that. The, the thing that angers me the most about the therapy that I had for so long was that there, there was no end game yeah. I, I, I was doing it for so long with the same therapist and, and I just look back and question, at what point were you gonna say, Hey, we are taking you down these horrific trails and you're in so much pain and you're angry and you can see it in your face and you're harming yourself with addiction and um isolation and depression. How do we change course? And that never changed. The message was always the same and, and that was I cannot excel or heal or be whole until the homosexuality was gone. Yeah, goodness. Another interesting piece of your story is that you all of a sudden discovered in your 30s or, or had the bandwidth to enjoy reading. And would you tell talk about that? Will I talk about that? <laughs> um, when I graduated from high school, I had a 1.8 GPA. And I hmm. assumed that I was not a very, I, I, I assumed I was not a very intelligent person. That was something that was really uh, deeply ingrained in my thought process. Between the ages of 18 and 31, 32, I think I counted, I had read a total of 19 books. I recognize now I just did not have the bandwidth to get lost in someone else's story. My life was full of busyness and chaos and TV and internet and chat rooms and food and occasionally recreational drugs, whatever, to just stay really busy. Mm-hmm. When I moved to California, I had just um, sold my investment in a partnership venture and took a job in San Diego. And when I went there, I told myself, I'm going to find out what my hobbies are. I bought the Tinder Bar by J.R. Moringer. Mm-hmm. And every Saturday, I would take my chair and go sit down at the beach in Del Mar or Solana Beach. And I would read for hours. And I would just recognize that after two hours of reading, I was so deeply into this story, but the sun had gone down, so I couldn't read anymore, that I, I had to find light. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it was really recognizing that for the first time in my life, I had room in my mind to get lost in someone else's story. And I was really hungry for that. Yeah. And that started the whole process of becoming obsessed with books and Goodreads. And um, it's it's by far my favorite hobby, for sure. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I love that because one, just because I love reading, but what a beautiful thing to discover um, at that point in life that just probably wouldn't have occurred to you otherwise, that it, that it was such a joy. And uh, you're an excellent writer. I mean, I, I, I say that unbiasedly as if I was not your friend. You're a good writer. Thank you. Um, I guess, would you describe, because I feel like we haven't specifically detailed this, as of today, there are six blogs out mm-hmm. on the other side of saved.com. Mm-hmm. And the podcast is launching Wednesday. Oh, is that right? Yeah, August 15th. Okay, beautiful. This will be good timing. Um, what What is your main hope and goal with the blog? And, and where do you see it going from here as you leave to travel? And, and what are your plans for this? Yeah. Um, the the vision really kicked in about a year ago of just sharing your story in the most authentic way possible to reach out to other people who are hurting unnecessarily. The key topics are male sexual abuse, trauma, PTSD, EMDR therapy, um, homosexuality within the Christian culture, within any kind of really faith-based system. And then really anyone who's been wounded by faith, their faith system or religion the the hope is that it's there for years and years as I pull back the curtain and say, yes, my life has appeared privileged. It's appeared um, happy and shiny. Here's what's really gone on. And the reality is, is that I'm happiest when things are really simple. Hmm. But I'm... Um, I put this blog together to expose the truth behind the struggle of sex addiction, male sexual abuse, things that I don't feel like anyone's talking about. Yeah. And that was a contributor to my isolation of also feeling like certainly I need to be very still and very quiet. And there's a reason I feel this shame and it's because this is shameful. So I'm going to be quiet. I, um, really am hopeful that going back to that 15 year old in Nebraska, yeah, that he looks at that, he or she looks at that blog and says, he hung on, he was just like me. Yeah. He, he hurt like I did. He was in this same pain. And not only did he overcome it, but he's mapped out a life that has tremendous pleasure and he is very comfortable in his own skin. Right. Yes. This might be a weird question. Do you think you will run out of things to say, so to speak? Because each, so far, I know it's only six posts in, but they've all been very particular stories. And like once you've kind of told the bulk of your stories, do you, do you, do you feel like you always have things to say or do you have a, like a notable um, ending point? for the blog and then to, you know, transform that into something else. Sure. 
That's a great question. I am clearly a talker, so I can't <laughs> imagine I'm going to run out of content. Sure. Um, there are so many different things that hit me in different ways that when it hits me, I think I want to write about that. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, I look forward to getting past the stories that I'm sharing have details of a lot of different types of abuse that took place. And the reason that's there is so that someone can hear the details, the specifics and be able to say, that's my story. And I feel like if I sugarcoated that, it it wouldn't have that same impact and that same effect where they're not able to hang on. I look forward to writing current day I really look forward to writing about the coming out process and everything that's happened since then. Right. But I can't jump to that until I cover my basis and lay that foundation. I I think I'm still probably six months out hmm. from getting to that part. Um, yeah. But I've been extremely... Uh, it's humbling to receive the amount of feedback that I've gotten from other people who are saying, I resonate with this story. That has meant the world to me. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to share some of those? Oh, sure. Uh, This one was from a gal who read uh, episode number five is about pornography. And she sent this email. Your blog is hitting me in places I ignore and I've cried through each one. The one today hit me so hard. My life has been wrought with abuse. And then my 20 year marriage was destroyed by pornography. I loved him more than I can speak of, and losing him to that darkness is killing me slowly. I read everything I can, trying to understand and forgive him for the pain he caused me and our children. Your voice and the voice of your words are giving to those of us still processing and grieving abuse, trauma, all of it is everything. Thank you. That meant uh, a lot to me to hear a mom be able to speak on behalf of her family and what they've lost. This one um, really hit me in the the gut. This guy is it's just so well written and he really put his heart on the line. I read over your blog, all of it. I'm amazed at the parallels in our stories. There's a lot of overlap in dealing with sexual abuse and unhealthy behavior relating to sexuality and also the agony over trying to somehow reconcile what I feel in my heart and what I read in the Bible. Thank you for painting such a candid self-portrait in such a public way. I drew a lot of strength and comfort in reading through it. It was yet another confirmation in my mind that God's been working all along, and also, importantly, that I'm not alone in my own nightmare. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So my day is filled with getting emails like this, and um, it's humbling. It is so humbling. And I... Someone gave... Someone else who's blogged and built a platform was really um, forward in saying, whatever you do, don't give advice. And hmm. I said, you know, I I don't typically give advice. And you know this on a day-to-day. If someone shares something really personal and intense, I ask them what they need. You know, right. I ask, do you need advice? Do you want, how can I support you in this? Mm-hmm. When I'm getting these messages, I love being able to send an email a response that's formatted and based on reminding them that I understand their pain mm-hmm. in whatever limited way that I can and that they are deeply, deeply loved and that God grieves over their pain. Yeah. 
I'm never going to not share that. Yeah. That's never going to be limited. And I don't feel liability. I don't, I don't give advice and I won't give advice other than please seek help. Please make sure that right. you're getting professional help. Right. It's amazing. Even in those two examples, what people are willing to share with you who are, you're a stranger to them essentially. Right. Uh, I guarantee no one else in their life knows those things. You right. know, they're not, where else can they bring that? And that's heavy, painful, real stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing just how much it can open someone up just to have you say it first. Yeah. Um, I, I already know the answer to this, but I want you to answer for listeners. Is it scary telling your stories? Is it scary opening up this vulnerably to anyone to find it? Yeah. Um, hell yes. The only way I know how to describe it is I, I am no longer in relationship with the majority of the people that had such influence on my life that represented that I was not lovable as I was. Hmm. I wrote in episode six that came out this week it's very difficult to know that I've had years lapsed since a lot of those relationships have ended, but they all have access to this story that I view of mine as gold, reconciled, beautiful, redemptive. That part's really tough. That someone can't read those words and capture the vision of, holy shit, this guy is really going out there and talking about how he was impacted by sexual abuse, how he's impacted by conversion therapy, um, what he's done with his own sex addiction, yeah. uh, all of the, the damage he's done to himself. He is laying it out there and then sharing how redemption took place to give him a full life. And it's very difficult for that to be there and know that people are pull, picking that apart yeah. and um, sending nasty messages that are just unfortunate, I would say. And I, yeah. um, I don't want to say that that part's really hard. I look at that part, getting the messages as this is part of this process. I knew this was going to happen and I'm okay with this. Um, it's the vulnerability aspect. This all happened so fast. And as you know, especially this week, I've just gotten way more traction than I anticipated. Yeah. And that has been stretching. And so all of a sudden I'm having to gear up and figure out each day, how to respond to the, the feedback and the response, and um, also take care of myself in the meantime. Yes, I I don't regret it, and I have tremendous confidence and security in what I'm doing and the story, mm -hmm. and will never cater to anyone else's feedback. I will continue to write in a way that helps the person hurting in unnecessary ways. Yeah. I think it's worth noting in all this discussion about therapy and growth and, and your journey, it is something that's never finished, not in the sense of you need to be in therapy forever in that any given person, but just you're stepping into these things, but it's, you also haven't come to some arrival point of perfection because that just doesn't exist. And I guess I, I say that to just point out you, even though you're stronger than ever, you have challenges, you have difficulties, ways that you fall short. 
And so it's just like, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want someone to get the perception that, uh, that you or I have it all together mm-hmm. or that we've like reached an arrival point, mm-hmm. but that this is lifelong and that's okay. And we do fail big time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's enormous grace, unbelievable love and safety and freedom. And, um, that you're, you're not alone in screwing up and that, and that usually you are your harshest critic Mm-hmm. that you beat yourself up way more than anyone else. And it's certainly more than God. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I want to echo my strength is in being authentic and honest. And that authenticity and that honesty is tremendous brokenness. Hmm. I, I, have resigned to the fact that I will most likely always be in therapy. There was just so much trauma. And I think it went on for so long. Yeah. There's, I have no shame in saying that. I don't feel like, I don't know other people who I think, oh, you should be in therapy for the rest of your life. It does not bother me. I think that um, it's just been such a healthy, powerful part of my growing system for myself. Yeah. That I and I, I've lived a very isolated life too. I think that as I'm building community, that might change. But I've always been very dependent on my therapist because it's where I've been the most honest. Yeah. But I absolutely echo what you're saying. There are um, there's not an arrival arrival point. I'm I'm happier, healthier than I've ever been, um, but extremely aware of tons of growth in tons of other areas yeah. that I know need to take place. Right. Um, in a couple of weeks here, you'll be leaving the country and you can say as little or as much about what that is, but what that entails, but just what are you most excited about in the next year, specifically with the travel? Dating. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have been so busy that, um, it's funny. Several people have reached out and said, where does this end? Are you in a relationship? Are you married? And I'm like, hell no, bring it on. Who you got? Mm. Um, I'm excited to have some space from my level of workaholism is just, it's almost a sickness and I'm really excited to have some space. I do not have a plan B. Hmm. I leave on August 25th. I've got that one year mapped out throughout Europe Africa, Asia, and South America. I don't have a clue what's going to happen after that, but I know that I'm going to be writing a weekly blog um, and doing a weekly podcast, sharing my story. Yeah, and that's all I've got. Um, but I'm, I think, just having this is a time for me of redemption and just taking back a lot of that loss, a lot of that grief. And it's, I think it's notable to share that one of my biggest fears when I was wrestling with coming out, one of my biggest fears was my subconscious was saying, you're going to have a hell of a lot of grief Hmm. if you do come out. And I knew that somehow I knew if you come out, you've got to grieve over all these years lost in conversion therapy Yeah, and recognize that the damage that is done was unnecessary, but it's what you knew. Um, this year of travel is my celebration of separation from that to just give me space to say, 
let's map a new course, let's lay a new foundation and then go from there. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, how attractive do you think other men find me, would you say, if you had to guess? It depends on <laughs> geography and the more oppressed areas, <laughs> like in a third world country, I'd say a solid 4.5. Okay, excellent. Um, mine for you is more emotional, so it's like an 11. <laughs> I can't even help it. Um, but if we like went to a gay bar together, yeah, people would definitely assume that we're just friends because they'd be like, Nate's way out of his league. So. <laughs> I just want to be clear. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I love that I can make you belly laugh. Like so few people hear your belly laugh. Mm. And do it again. It's pretty rare. Well, it's something <laughs> has to. Yeah, something has to catch me. Catch love, me right. I love that. Is there anything else that you would like to say or share or point people to? Any closing thoughts? I think just the main thing is um, I want to convince people to hang on. I feel like. We all have these decisions on a daily basis. Our heart, our six-year-old self presenting a different path and we turn it away out of fear, out of anxiety, out of not trusting ourselves to go back to those places. And I just want to tell people to hang on so that they can start moving towards those places and find, find freedom. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. Well, thank you, Nate. This was great. This is awesome. And thank you. I am so excited for the next year for you. Thank you. That is my conversation with Nate Postalweight. Just want to remind you and encourage you to go look at the other side of saved.com. Um, there's a lot more there that Nate and I didn't cover today, but it dives much deeper into his story. You can experience his very lovely writing, uh, which is empowering and encouraging to a lot of folks. And it's just a really beautiful thing. So please go to the other side of saved.com and subscribe and, and keep an eye out for Nate's podcast as well. The last thing I'll leave you with is if you enjoy texture, if you appreciate what I'm doing here and you would like to support me for as little as 25 cents an episode equates to a buck a month, please go to patreon.com slash texture pod to support the show and there you will get bonus little happy extra snacky treats uh, that don't come out publicly and you can also be a part of the patreon community there and interact with other people who are passionate about doing the work thank you for listening to this episode especially if it was your first time welcome i'm glad you're here hope you enjoyed and benefited from my talk with nate and i will see you all next time bye-bye